Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. New Democrats will fight so that together we all rise. If he thinks he can threaten Canadians with another election in 18 months, the Conservative Party will be ready. Thank you, Purple Army. Uh, it is hard to lose. No one likes to lose. Pourquoi avoir interrompu mon barbecue? You are sending us back to work with a clear mandate to get Canada through this pandemic. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and some serious reflections on political will. Today, we take stock of the two weeks since the election. It only took 13 days, but we got Trudeau's first apology in his third term as prime minister. It came after he went to Tofino for vacation on Canada's inaugural National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. What does restoring relations actually mean to him, to all of us? And the two Michaels are finally home. Where does Canada's relationship with China and the Chinese-Canadian diaspora go from here? Joining me today, Stuart Thompson, Editor-in-Chief at The Hub Canada. Welcome back. Hey. Are you rested? Uh, nearly. I'm getting there. <laughs> and we've got a couple of new guests and amazing people joining us on the backbench today. First, Riley Yesno, writer, PhD student of Canadian politics at the University of Toronto and research fellow at the Yellowhead Institute. Welcome to the show, Riley. Thank you for having me. And Joanna Chu, senior journalist at the Toronto Star with a brand new book, China Unbound, which just dropped last week. We're so excited you're here. Hi, thanks for plugging my book. <laughs> We're about to have a really fun conversation, so let's get to it. It sets us squarely on the path to true reconciliation. 
That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau back in 2015 when he was first elected. He said his election set Canada on the true path to reconciliation. At the time, he promised to implement all 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Fast forward to 2021, six years later, and more than half of those calls to action either haven't been started at all or haven't gotten past the proposal stage. One of the handful of actions that have been implemented, though, was the establishment of a National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, September 30th. That was just last week. It was a powerful day. Orange shirts in high school playgrounds and marches across the country, signs reminding people to learn about Indigenous peoples outside coffee shops and in city parks. And yet, in its inaugural year, Trudeau instead decided to spend it with his family, despite two invitations from Tecumloops Tessawepmik, to spend it with them and commemorate the unmarked graves. Here is Trudeau on September 13th speaking to global journalist Neetu Garcha when she asked when he would go visit them. I will go to Kamloops as soon as that, uh, that as, as it is uh, right and possible for me to go there. Riley, Trudeau has of course since apologized. Sunday, he said sorry to Chief Roseanne Casimir of Tecumloops Tisowepmik for not showing up. But I am so confused. Was this not the right and possible and maybe even perfect time to go? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess for some background context is that like I w- was not pumped for Orange Shirt Day, uh, TRC Day. To me, it was just like another reminder of Canada's like many performances of reconciliation as opposed to doing anything substantively for Indigenous people. And also as if they don't have the directions and the calls and, and the money and the, to how to do it. It's just the, the will that they're lacking. And this was like so emblematic of that to me. I found it almost comical about Tofino was that like, this is a man who like loves symbolism, loves lowering the flag, loves the holiday. And so you'd think that maybe he would just understand that that symbolically at the very least is like bad, you know, Um, and clearly did not, which is also just so shocking to me because it reminds me, it makes me think that he must then really think, you know, he's doing it. Like he is doing enough on reconciliation just by making the day. I was mostly frustrated, if anything, because truly going into to the 30th, I was not expecting anything revolutionary from Justin Trudeau. But I was really disappointed with the way that Canadian media especially was just like aghast that he went. And that was where the interrogation stopped in terms of, you know, their analysis. Where else did the analysis need to go, in your opinion? I mean, I would have pointed out how, first of all, like Indigenous people were interpreting the the day on the onset and also how do they characterize Justin Trudeau's actions? For me, I would think that if you were talking to anybody who like thinks really critically about reconciliation in this country, they would probably get along the same vein of being like, oh yeah, like this is another superficial act of reconciliation that Justin Trudeau is performing. And from there, like that is a perfect conversation point to jump off of to have like a really fruitful interrogation of like this government's track record when it comes to Indigenous affairs. When I think about the reckoning of residential schools that we were having like pre-election time, right? The point of that was not just so that everybody wears the orange shirts and lowers the flags. It was so that we could have a really hard, honest conversation about what you know, the legacy and contemporary context of Canada is how Indigenous people are treated in this country, um, the narratives that we've swept under the rug for so long. And instead, we still can't seem to get past that basic entryways into the conversation. 
Yeah, it's a good point. And, and while we're on the topic of performative action, we also saw the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops also apologize last week for their role in residential schools. Trudeau had called on them to apologize in the summertime. Joanna, what's your view on this? How do you think this apology impacts Canadian politics, if at all? Does it help further the conversation? Well, to me, it's been months, so it seemed like it was very belated. So you wonder what the bishops are doing <laughs> to have issued a statement this late when it should have been a no-brainer to really quickly jump on it and at least apologize, um, if not very concrete uh, investigations of their own practices mm-hmm. in Canada. So I think it's very belated and, and, like you said, quite performative. One of the reasons we're having this conversation is because I want to focus on concrete actions, especially when considering that Trudeau highlighted reconciliation as one of his key action items in his first and only press conference after the election. We will be marking the very first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, and it'll be an important moment for all Canadians to re- uh, to reflect on both the historic uh, legacy uh, of harm that residential schools has created, but also uh, the very current echoes in the present and in the future that uh, those harms and those mistakes made by Canada in the past uh, continue to uh, to deliver. So uh, this Thursday will be an important day for reconciliation as we continue uh, to make that a key priority for our government. Lots to do. Uh, Stuart, part of the heat that the federal governments are facing includes calls for reparation, land back, and by extension what the Yellowhead Institute is calling for cash back as well. And on the topic of cash, the federal government dismissed the Liberal government's appeals last week, affirming the Trudeau government should pay up per the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal's order. That means there will be $40,000 given to each child affected by the on-reserve child welfare system since January 1st, 2006. And that's a pretty hefty chunk of change if there isn't another appeal. Do you think there's political will here to support reparations like this? The will is interesting because I find when these things go through courts, it kind of lends this legitimacy to it. I guess the question is the Human Rights Tribunal, how much you what you put in that and whether the, this is the right place to go. I think that's sort of the crux of the government's issue here is does this um, tribunal have the scope to give this settlement? Um and I think it's an interesting sort of symbolic uh, question, though. This is something that Jagmeet Singh brought up a lot on the trail, which is Prime Minister Trudeau says a lot of things, and then the actions don't always correlate with what he's saying. And he's not even doing the performance now. Like, we're, we're even beyond that. He's literally going on vacation um, on Reconciliation Day. And if you look at, I think, Remembrance Day, I don't think there's any question that he's going to be somewhere for Remembrance Day. And I just don't understand why when they decided to put this holiday in place, there wasn't someone chalking off that day in the calendar and saying, hey, you're going to go somewhere in the morning and you're going to like it. And then, you know, the rest of the day is yours. Like Riley's point about how this is um, not supposed to be an easy thing to do, I think is really good because, you know, we had a piece on uh, Thursday on The Hub from one of our writers, Karen Rastoul, who she described reconciliation as a path through dark realities and complex grief. Like, if you're doing it, it's going to be really hard and painful. And, you know, that's what these events are like for politicians, because no one's there to congratulate them. No one's there to shake their hands. It's something a little harder than that. But I'm curious, Riley, what what do you think? What would you prefer him to do that day? 
Honestly, and like this, I know is not a popular opinion, maybe even necessarily like within indigenous communities at large, but I do love these instances where he just shows like the mask comes off. And like, this is, this is to me, like him going out to Defino is Trudeau and is like what he thinks about reconciliation. Like I have a hard time like thinking about it as like a mistake and like a miscalculation or whatever, because it's just so transparent, right? Like it reminds me of when like he said, oh, thank you for your donation to the folks who are poisoned in Grassy Narrows, for example. Truth and Reconciliation Day was hard. It's a hard day for survivors. It's a hard day for intergenerational survivors. And the most meaningful things that I thought came out of that at least were an opportunity for Indigenous people who that day is so hard for to get together and like be in community and support one another and find those spaces. And I wouldn't want Justin Trudeau there. Like, even if if that is the most beautiful thing, you know, like I don't want him there with his like fake reconciliation. So like, I, I don't know. I just think I'd prefer at least that he's like not pretending and like showing me transparently how much he has like no real meaningful care for it as opposed to like, you know, doing what he's done in the past, which has become just almost memeable in Indigenous communities of him like sitting around in a teepee on Parliament Hill. So I kind of agree with both Stuart and Riley in the sense that I actually don't think the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation should become like a political photo op as Remembrance Day, I think, has become. I actually think it is like a broader day for the country to reckon with its role in this narrative. And hopefully schools and communities and people use that for their advantage, which at least in my neighborhood I saw. There were ways for him to further the conversation on this first day you know, the first national day of truth and reconciliation, which he didn't. The contrast to Remembrance Day is really interesting because you're right. This was a moment to set a tone for this day. And something really interesting about Remembrance Day is that there's kind of this battle about whether it should be a stat holiday or, you know, just some day that, you know, the kids go to school and they do ceremonies. And the Legion has actually fought against it being a stat holiday for this precise reason, that they would prefer to have kids learning about the day and people at work having to like talk to their colleagues about it. It's been a long, it's like a hundred year battle for them. So let's quickly talk about some more action items. We heard a lot during the election. Uh, Riley, you're a researcher at the Yellowhead Institute. You were involved in the conversations around cashback. You also wrote a piece for them about the budget, the, the last spring 2021 budget. What do you want to see? Give me the one, two, three steps that the government needs to do to follow up on their promises. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated in that, like the, the like the harms look different in each section of the country, like to the specific indigenous people there. So then the like one, two, three will look different on each. But like by and large, you mentioned how like um, that the prime minister didn't mention things like land back or cash back um, during that day. And like just based on my research, like I would be shocked if he ever did, because the point of the land back and cash back movements is that they cannot be co-opted by the government in the same way that reconciliation has. Like reconciliation was originally made by survivors to be this like really profound thing about healing and love for future generations. Justin Trudeau and a lot of institutions in Canada took that and made it into something instead where it's like, again, like all those symbolic things we've been talking about. Land back is so material and it is so demanding of just concrete reparations that it's something that I don't think anytime soon we'll be seeing any leadership really willing to engage with because that would have to mean a a huge secession of power on their part, which is why 
reconciliation is such an easy one for them to like really embrace because they have made it synonymous with symbolic gestures. But in an ideal world where like perhaps they do do that, <laughs> I would say like those material gestures, like or those material actions, sorry, uh, and uh, reclamations are the important thing. So like in my budget analysis, I talk about how like they put $18 billion over the next five years to improve the quality of life and new opportunities is what they said. They like put it in this language of like, like do you see how historic that is? That is like quadruple what the last budget was. Like we are doing it. But then when you look at like what experts actually call to meaningfully improve the conditions for Indigenous people on the ground, it's going to be at least $30 billion just for infrastructure. Mumalakakak was like first to point it out. So the $18 billion for everything for Indigenous communities doesn't even fix like the one thing of the housing crisis, you know, never mind water or MMIWG or all the TRC commitments. And this is why like in cashback, and I think it's like one of the best quotes is that they succinctly say, you know, money is not an Indigenous right, but is given at the pleasure of the branch of the government, that the policy in Canada has always been that whatever is enough just to keep them alive. It's the backbone of the fiscal approach since Confederation. If they could depart from that in any meaningful way, I would be very impressed. But maybe I'm a bit cynical in thinking that I don't think that that'll come from the top, at least anytime soon. <laughs> you don't sound cynical. You sound realistic. I mean, you, you can't just like throw a random figure at a problem without actually understanding how much money needs to be thrown at the problem. Um, so that's all totally fair. And now I understand why you characterize the budget as underwhelming. But also moving forward, there, there still seems to be, as, as is pointed out by, by this panel so far, a hesitancy to have these real meaningful uh, conversations about what needs to be done. Riley, you've offered a lot of insights as an Indigenous person and, and as a researcher into this, but the settlers also need to show up, right? So Stuart, Joanna, I'm wondering what you feel the government should be prioritizing in the coming parliament to show some seriousness on the reconciliation file. Um, I think the election kind of gave a preview of what priorities are to come. And when I saw that Trudeau spent the National Day uh, in Tofino, it made me think about the excellent interview that uh, Global News reporter Nitu did with Trudeau. She grilled him on all of these major issues, including reconciliation and his lack of progress on his promises um, to Indigenous communities. And at the end of the interview, when she was wrapping up, um, he, he said, wait, uh, you haven't gotten to the important questions yet, the big questions like the pandemic, like what he's doing for the economy. And you know, he was criticized for that. And I think just that, that kind of slip up was pretty candid. I think it just shows that uh, his commitment to reconciliation to Indigenous communities wasn't part of what his team decided that Canadians voters really, really cared about. But I think he and his team may have done a pretty um, serious miscalculation in that respect. And it's unclear to me whether there will be any type of lessons learned from it and that they might move forward and actually prioritize these things that people in the country actually do care about. But I wouldn't be very optimistic. Stuart, do you have any optimism at all on this? <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I think it's important to have some optimism or maybe call it hope. You know, you don't want to get yourself into a position where you're so cynical that we all assume that nothing can be done. And I think as far as concrete solutions could go, something that's kind of obsessed me, the Canada Child Benefit is 
like the signature policy of this government. And you may notice that in the early days, they talked about it as almost like an indigenous policy, which would, um, it almost functions like a universal basic income for some people. In the very early days, they talked about it as like a hand up, but they have stopped doing that. And part of the reason is that the rate of tax filing is lower on reserves. And I think that's for two reasons. One is that I actually had an indigenous prof who refused to file taxes as like a protest. And I think that sentiment is out there. Um, and the other one is that, you know, just lower socioeconomic status usually means less tax filing. It just happens, you know, across the country. So one of the key things about the Canada Child Benefit is that it requires you to pay your taxes to get it. So one thing that could be done is um, either simplifying tax filing or just doing it automatically at the CRA. This is not an easy change to make, uh, and there have been experts who have made this point, uh, I think, very well. But it is something we can do. I think we have the capacity to do that. And that would be something that, you know, if you have kids, the Canada Child Benefit is an incredible policy. Um, you know, this is something that has, like, multi-partisan support from all of our political parties. If it's not working for First Nations people, we should fix that. Point of order, Madam Speaker? What is your point of order, Stuart? Well, I would just like to give a shout out to my colleague at The Hub, Luke Smith. Um, he has a piece up today, um, Tuesday, um, about his phobia about needles. And um, <laughs> he's such a brilliant writer that it is like, it really gets you into his head. But like sort of the bigger story here is that research suggests that like 10% of vaccine hesitancy, maybe more, is driven by this really deep phobia. And I didn't know this, but he taught me by writing his piece that it's called blood injection injury phobia. And that actually creeps me out. That phrase creeps me out more than an actual needle does. It's <laughs> so I get it. Um, but Luke kind of goes through what happens to him when he sees a needle or when he talks about it, needles, like it literally just when he talks about it. And then he gets into how he beat it, which was sort of behavioral therapy and exposure therapy. It really is amazing the, the path that he took to get over it. And it seems like a really effective strategy. So it's kind of a public service piece to anyone who's you know still on the fence because it's just too horrible to consider going to get a shot. Listen, not a point of order, but a scary sounding phobia and a valid public service journalism to get the last sections of our population vaccinated. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Joetta? I would like to take this opportunity to raise in the last weeks, there's been a a wave of vile, hate-filled online attacks and emails against Canadian journalists. And part of it was spared by People's Party leader Maxime Bernier urging his followers to email journalists and tell them what you think of their disgusting smear jobs. And of course, it seems that most of the targets were women and women of color, which is actually not new. It's just kind of like the icing on the cake of how uh, women, people of color, minorities, uh, Black indige Indigenous journalists get the lion's share of hate and attacks doing their jobs every single day, all year long. Earlier this year, I tried going to police with some of the threats I received, including some death threats. And police said really candidly, there was nothing they could do about it. They couldn't compel companies to provide IP addresses. Even when, you know, my job, I read a lot about China and foreign states, including India too, there might be some sort of foreign nationals involved or maybe even some state involvement. But no, there's no part of the police that are responsible or 
really willing to take on this. So the Canadian Association of Journalists is calling for an RCMP investigation into this wave of attacks um, that may have been spurred partly by the PBC. But so far, the RCMP are not saying that they will take action. And I'm just wondering if at this point, if all media has to get together and do some sort of class action lawsuit or some sort of legal action, it's kind of reached breaking point for, for journalists and especially journalists who are not white male journalists. It's getting to the point where it's hard to do your job. Yeah, that's also not a point of order as much as I wish it was a point of order because I got some fun emails last weekend. Madam Speaker, I also have a point of order. What is your point of order, Riley? I want to shout out The Breach, uh, which is a media where I am one of the contributing editors at large. And I am really proud and think it's really important this expose they just published about how Canada deported over 1,500 Haitians since 2014 by not revising a policy from the Harper era and all of the data that prompted the Harper era policy this expose shows is out of date and inaccurate. Um, And then the Trudeau government continued to deport Haitians based on that information, um, which is, I think, really uh, important to talk about, considering especially how much this government likes to tout themselves as leaders for and, and, you know, a great hope for asylum seekers and refugees and the like. So I would love to see more people talking about it. And I think that the Canadian media needs to do a much better job at international affairs reporting. Also not a point of order, but holy shit. Can I just say that? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So as divisive as this election was, four days after it, the country got to unite and exhale after some great news. Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor two Canadians that were held in Chinese prison for more than 1,000 days were finally released. The entire saga is both cinematic and troubling and has raised many, many questions about Canada's present and future relationship with China. According to a Toronto Star report by Tonda McCharles, despite official denials, the men's release was a closely coordinated arrangement that depended on a plea deal in the United States to settle criminal charges against Meng Guangzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei, a major Chinese telecom company. Meng Wanzhou was first arrested on Canadian soil on December 1st, 2018, on an extradition order from the United States for breaching American economic sanctions against Iran. Last week, the U.S. authorized Meng's release, and hours later, the two Michaels were also on a plane back to Calgary. Chinese state media Global Times contradicts this entire report, saying that Chinese courts released the two Michaels, after they had confessed their guilt and were approved to be released on bail for medical reasons. Joanna, you've been following this case very closely. What are the elements of this entire saga that jumped out at you? What are the parts that we weren't paying attention to that we probably should have? What was frustrating for me throughout, which was partly the reason why I wrote this book, um, my subtitle, New World Disorder, is not because... 
um, pointing the fingers at Beijing for creating this chaos. It's really looking at how Western countries have failed to really have any sort of China policy that's nuanced and principled. And that includes having this kind of charade and this posturing that what happened with the whole Hmong case and the two Michaels was a huge surprise and something that Canada you know, had to react to because the same government, the same Trudeau government had to deal with a very similar um, kind of hostage-taking leverage situation just years earlier um, with the Gar- Garretts, uh, Kevin and Julia Garrett. Uh, they were Christian aid workers and they were taken in 2014, widely believed to be retaliation for Canada's arrest that year of Chinese citizen Subin, who was accused of hacking U.S. military databases. So it just seems like it's a repeat and but people forgot about the Garrett's, people forget about before that the many uh, hostages or uh, political prisoners at least um, who are Canadian, who are foreigners, who many of whom are still in Chinese prisons and in the case particularly of some Australian citizens of Chinese heritage seem to also be linked to political tensions. Um, so even though I'm like a personal friend of Covrigs and so relieved and happy that they're back home and safe and, you know, looking at least physically way better than I think many people would expect. It's also frustrating that there is, in the aftermath of their release, this narrative that, okay, we're over this saga, we're over this crisis, things can kind of go back to normal. That's, you know, concerning for several reasons. One is that they're continue to be um, political prisoners in China. China doesn't have a rule of law system. They have a nearly 100% conviction rate. I pointed out in, in my book, as well as in articles for the Toronto Star, pointing out that the huge worldwide attention on the two Michaels um, probably did have something to do with um, the fact that they were these middle-class white men sitting in jail cells. Somehow that really struck a chord with many people Whereas um, all the previous um, prisoners of Asian descent did not, you know, garner this much uh, international attention, including Hussein Salil, a Canadian who was arrested in 2006. His case was also really dramatic because he didn't step foot in China. He was visiting his wife's family in Uzbekistan, and he was among, you know, several people now who have have been essentially kidnapped from outside China and then end up in Chinese jails. So... It's like I'm of two minds where I'm relieved that the two Michaels are back, including a personal friend of mine, and also worried that um, now Canada and other Western governments can feel like they can move on and try to return to a status quo um, and not have to come up with some sort of countermeasures to prevent this exact situation from happening over and over again. You said a very... um Slightly terrifying (laughs) landscape, but uh, you raise a valid point. We often don't treat foreign policy seriously, especially when it comes to foreign policy with China seriously uh, as Western nations. In recent months, the U.S. has made a variety of defense deals with different countries, including Australia, which is facing both a trade war with China and an aggressive naval buildup in the Indo-Pacific. But all these defense deals, they exclude Canada. Stuart, how does Canada fit into this posturing in the Pacific, in your opinion? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head by saying we don't really fit. And that keeps happening. These these conferences, the deals keep happening, and they're excluding Canada. And I think it's partly due to this government's unserious take on China. And I think partly the other factor here is that Canada, I think, is seen globally as not really taking 
international affairs or defense very seriously. That can be seen by our behavior in the Arctic Ocean. Um, this is something that's going to come to us whether we want it to or not, especially with the trends with global warming. China and Russia are interested in the Arctic Ocean. You know, that's something you have to deal with. It's something you have to actually spend money to address. And you also have to spend political capital to address it too. There was, I think, a few decades where we could just sort of tag along with the United States and hope that we could just sort of be their partner and they would protect us. And they have this massive military. So if anything went down in the Arctic, they would help us out. I think that it's coming home now more and more to people that that may not be the case. And I think the Trump years maybe um, brought that home quicker than we expected it to be brought home. But I think we need to accept that we're in an all, every country for itself kind of situation here. And what that probably means is it's not going to be a satisfying solution to the problem, but um, this will be an incremental thing. So trade deals like the TPP, um, which were sort of broadly designed I don't want to say marginalized, but to decrease China's influence in the area, even by a little bit, that is a good thing to do. And it was only through the just complete ignorance of the Trump administration that we didn't have, you know, the U.S. involved in that in the beginning. Just to respond to some of the points that Stuart made, these defense packs that are coming up, including AUKUS, uh, which involves Australians getting access to nuclear-powered submarines and some military technology sharing, I think... The issue is not that Canada was excluded. It was that we got reports that Canadian leaders weren't even notified that this deal was in the works until it was just about to be signed. Maybe people in Canada might not end up wanting Canada to join something that at least Beijing might see as um, an act of countries getting together to challenge its military in the South China Sea, the Asia Pacific. But the fact that Canada wasn't even part of a conversation, I think that's a crux of what's kind of humiliating and concerning. And I think it also reflects uh, what has happened in the last several years where Ottawa has just been not making any decision related to China foreign policy at all. I think the excuse was that they were worried about the safety of the two Michaels, if China would would treat them worse. Um, but now that they're back, what's going to happen next? There's such a lack of China experience and China expertise that these leaders are really going into these major, this pivotal moment without, it seems, much China knowledge. Just one example, just quickly bring up that shows that Canada has made no decision is every major country, Western country in the last several years has made some decision on whether to allow Huawei into the development of its country's 5G networks. Canada just kept saying it would make a decision because it's kind of critical for our companies to move forward with rollout. But as of today, there's still no decision on whether Huawei will play a role in 5G, partial or, or not. So this is forcing Canadian companies to make their own decisions, which is very different from what other allies have done, like UK, Australia. We are outliers in that respect. And I don't think this narrative that we were stuck in the middle with the whole Meng Wanzhou issue that was mostly a conflict between Washington and Beijing was very productive either because it seemed that Canadian leaders were quite content with playing the, the victim mentality and that the situation was foisted on us rather than taking some responsibility for its lack of preparation and lack of understanding of China. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting point. During the election, we didn't hear much about China. I think the Conservative Party was the only one that really came out strong uh, against China and saying that we're going to be tough on them. And last week, the South China Morning Post reporter uh, Ian Young tweeted about how he noticed that many majority ethnic Chinese writings that were historically conservative actually flipped including former conservative MP Kenny Chu's writing of Steveston, Richmond East. Kenny Chu himself was vocal about how the Canadian government needs to be more proactive communicating with Chinese Canadian voters since he got unseated. Riley, when you're looking at all of this and, and looking at the implications at home, especially considering we've got a very large Chinese diaspora here in Canada, what do we think this new government and this new conservative opposition can do um, moving forward? Like, do you think, to ask a similar question to from earlier, there's political will to be serious about this? I don't necessarily know that like Canadian officials want to, but I think that it's becoming an increasingly important conversation and that the public is making it like something that Canadian officials have to tackle more seriously now than they have in the past. Like, so whether or not it's will by choice or will by force, um, I think that we are coming to a point where Canadian politicians and decision makers are going to have to seriously reckon with their insufficiencies that everybody has pointed out here. I don't think they'll have a choice. Stuart, what connection do you think the Conservatives' losses had with their messaging on China, if anything? I am someone who was highly skeptical of the whole Russian interference narrative from the American election in 2016. And, I mean, it's entirely possible. I think it's almost likely that they were trying to influence things. But I'm just highly skeptical of how much you can do with social media. So I will say, in in these early days... I'll leave my mind open to it, but parties love excuses for why they didn't win. I would also say that the fact that China was doing that if they were is just as big of a deal, whether it worked or not. I just want to give some context. In Canada in particular, there are actually a lot of Canadian societies and organizations made up of Canadian citizens um, that actively call themselves pro-Chinese government. And on their websites, they say part of their mission is to liaise with the Chinese embassy and officials to try to promote um, Beijing's goals in Canadian politics. And I've been doing reporting on this um, about how some of their statements have been, we want to get um, uh, politicians that are more friendly to China in in office in Canada, and it's played out in local politics, in small-level, small, small level, low-level politics all across Canada, where city councillors in a town of 500 would get emails offering paid trips to China to understand China, for example. So as far as a broader question of, does Beijing really care about Canadian politicians and politics? The answer is yes. And there has been documented efforts at pretty public soft power, soft influence at least. When it comes to misinformation playing out on social media apps like WeChat and WhatsApp, that's when it's more murky because you don't know where these posts come from. There was one case in 2018 in Metro Vancouver when we were having our mayor and city councillor races where one of such societies that say publicly on their website that they support the Chinese government on WeChat private groups, they were offering $20 for everyone who wanted to, as a subsidy for travel, to go vote. But then they also supplied a list of candidates they wanted people to vote for. So the police actually did start a vote tampering investigation to this issue. 
But, you know, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of public knowledge about how this works. And in fact, the conservatives themselves have tried to take advantage of how popular apps like WeChat are to Chinese Canadian communities, particularly recent immigrants, which I feel are more vulnerable to misinformation. The conservatives, this was actually confirmed by the elections commissioner in uh, 20. 20, that in 2019, in the previous federal election, they paid for a post on WeChat that was basically a lie. It said that Trudeau, if elected, would make all drugs legal. And for some reason, even though it, it was confirmed that the conservatives paid for this ad, they didn't get in trouble because according to you know election law, if a post reaches less than a certain number of people, like 100,000 people, it's not punishable. But now we have to look at the responsibilities and actions of the party versus individual candidates. In this case, for Kenny Chu, it might be the case that he was, uh, his campaign was affected by misinformation that uh, skewed his proposals for a foreign agent registry. But at the same time, if the party were to support his complaints without addressing how it has used WeChat to spread misinformation targeting Chinese Canadians, I think that's very hypocritical. I guess to wrap up, my question to everyone is, I don't know, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> Can the backman solve the China problem? <laughs> Riley, like you and I are, are same on this. We're not as super experts. Like, what are you thinking? Like, tell us what you're thinking listening to all of this. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, I'm really daunted having no information about like, you know, just the scope of the problem and the like just so many moving parts and multifaceted nature of it. But I'm also hearing and and feel like and like want to read Joanna's book so bad because like, I'm very excited now <laughs> because I'm like, there are obviously like people who are thinking really hard about this and have solutions and are recognizing these moving parts and doing it. And I'm just like, once again, I mean, I mean, not shocked, but disappointed <laughs> and, and like just frustrated by the lack of action and will on the part of our leadership and our government to be able to meaningfully engage with that analysis and with those solutions we're just going to read joanna's book and, yeah. and also your your summary was perfect because that entire sentiment applies to both reconciliation and china <laughs> which were two massive topics that i decided to tackle in the backbench today <laughs> and god help me but hopefully we all learned something yeah i just liked riley's advice to just go parental on this one and just not be <laughs> mad but be disappointed um i think that's the best way to go as always, there's way too much happening in Canadian politics, so we're once again going to do a rapid-fire section in which all of my guests have to answer in 10 words or less. <laughs> Annemie Paul stepped down as Green Party leader last week. She called her tenure as Green Party leader the worst period in her life. Alex Ballingall of the Toronto Star reported that Anime called out her staff for advocating for her indictment in the International Criminal Court and how anti-Semitic tropes were used against her in online forums. Elizabeth May wrote in a Toronto Star column, her leadership style clashed with party culture almost from the beginning, and that Anime still controls communications from the party. Joanna, will the Green Party be able to bounce back? I guess we don't know the full story, but it's not looking good. It seems like there is some degree of infighting and that elements in the party did not support Anami Paul's leadership. Riley, Prime Minister Trudeau says Christia Freeland will remain Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance. He's also promised gender parity in his next cabinet. This is a two-part question, which you still have to answer in 10 words or less. <laughs> One, what kind of cabinet do you want to see in place? And two, in Christia Freeland we trust or nah? 
<laughs> the only thing, don't count these words. The only thing <laughs> coming to my mind is not a neoliberal cabinet. Um, and the Christian Freeland we trust. No, <laughs> no, she gives me the same energy of actor of the liberal elite. <laughs> and finally, Stuart, as we all take stock of the election results, two interesting trends have emerged. First, according to research by David Armstrong and Zach Taylor of Western University and Jack Lucas from the University of Calgary, the Liberals won all 25 of the most urban writings in Canada and 109 of the top 150 most urban writings. The urban-rural split seems very, very real, and it seems to be getting bigger. Second, according to National Post report, of the 41 writings in Canada where more than half the population is racialized, the Conservatives won just one in the 2021 election, Calgary Forest Lawn, despite winning 119 seats overall. Are these signs that the country is deeply polarized, and should we probably do something about that? Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> that this is probably the story of our time, the urban-rural divide, and um, if I had more than 10 words, I would explain why that's why Jason Kenney's government is faring as poorly as it is right now politically. All right, on that note, we'll adjourn. That was The Backbench. We're back to our regular programming. We'll see you again in two weeks. We are so grateful you're listening to us. This podcast has only been around for five months, and we are growing by leaps and bounds. That's all because of you. Thank you for all your feedback about our long-form interview with Derek last week. Please keep listening and engaging with us. You can send us your questions or your concerns or your rants. Our email is backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter, BackbenchCast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Riley, where do people follow your work? People can follow me online on Twitter at Riley Yes No Maybe. Um, I do the joke for everybody already, so you don't have to. And if you want to follow my work specifically or get in touch, uh, I have a website that is just RileyYesNo.com. Joanna, besides buying your book, which everyone has to do, where can people find you? Just a little point about the book. I would really love it if people try to support independent bookstores if possible. And a neat trick that I just learned in being an author is to look on IndieBound.org. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. It's just my name, Joanna Chu. Uh, Instagram, Joanna Chu underscore five. And Stuart, where can people find you? Yeah, go to thehub.ca where we're celebrating six months in existence. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lam with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you so much for listening. See you soon. And I'm sincerely sorry. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. 
ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. 